Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Um, If you'll open your Bibles to uh, the book of Genesis, we are continuing our study through the book of Genesis. We are going to be in chapters 5 and 6 tonight. Yes, we are picking up a little speed here. Don't get too excited. Um, we're We're going to try to move through this. And it's important for us to remember that when we read the Old Testament, that we're not reading merely or getting a history lesson. Uh, It it is history, but it's not just a history lesson. All of this history, this his story, is meant to point us to Christ. Um, I've said it numerous times. I'll say it again. It's not my own. But when we preach the Old Testament, when we teach the Old Testament, it ought to be Christocentric, meaning Christ-centered. That is the hope that we have. And everything, as we mentioned in the earlier chapters of Genesis, everything hinges upon the intervention of Christ and and the hope that they were looking forward. Um, So we'll do a quick review of chapter four from last week. Um, In that chapter, we talked about the fact that we are commanded, uh, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and, and multiply. And from a procreation viewpoint and from a salvation discipleship viewpoint for you and I, that we are, we are called to be fruitful and multiply, yes, to have children, but also to inspire others to seek Christ and become children of God. So there's this ongoing work that we're called to. And that children are meant to be a blessing. We were chatting about that earlier, laughing a little bit about it. Um, they're meant to be a blessing from God and also a tool if we are doing our jobs as parents, raising them up in the Lord, as the scriptures would say, then they're a tool to advance the kingdom of God. We also talked about death being a certainty and a faithful reminder of the shortness or the brevity of life and how it points us to our need for redemption. This, this is the picture we're going to see again tonight um, in our study. And we also talked about the fact that to offer our lives as living sacrifices requires us to live by faith. This was the testimony of Abel that his sacrifice was acceptable, not because it was a blood offering, but because it was offered in the attitude of the heart, offered by faith with humility. Whatever offering we might bring to God must be accompanied with that faith in Jesus Christ who he is and what he has done and continues to do in us and through us. As I said last week, good deeds done without faith are worthless. So we get this admonition from Hebrews 13.5. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And Thessalonians mentions this 
this whole idea of continually remembering that he is the Lord and everything that we have from him is good and it's worthy of our acknowledgement, our thanks and praise. We talked about a fact, the fact that a heart not surrendered by faith is fertile ground for sin to flourish. And we, again, we see this. We see this in our own lives, in those seasons where we wander. And when sin gives birth, it brings forth death, destruction. Again, I think we can all agree we've experienced those aspects of our lives where we've given into sin and it's wrecked, it's wrecked us just as it did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, Cain, he serves as that living example. The question is, what example are we setting? Whose example are we following? And who are we inspiring others to follow? Though even when we sin, and we are going to sin, when we fail, God is ever faithful ever faithful to be patient and to first extend grace and mercy before he executes judgment. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, it is his patient grace and mercy we are now experiencing. The whole world is now experiencing his patient grace and mercy. Having followed the corrupt desires of his heart, Cain now becomes the foundation for a pe people and a culture steeped in, in pride, pleasure, and perversion. And that's, uh, as we talked about last week, what, a, what a, a grieving thing for a parent to experience. Not just the death of a godly son, but equally hard to experience the slow, painful death of a son that would run from God. And again, some, some parents here, I'm sure, have experienced that or are experiencing that with children that have departed from the faith and, and watching them go through life knowing that harm is just around the corner or is there. As the scripture says, as it said to Cain, crouching at the door, waiting. So, Though God is patient... And God can't deny his nature or his promises, and he will fill them both. There is a consequence to pay. We're going to see some of that tonight. So chapter 4 ends with the genealogies of Seth, from which the promised kind of serpent-crushing Messiah must come that is spoke of there in the early chapters of Genesis. Which leads us now to Genesis chapter 5, which is a book of genealogies, but it has some little pieces here and there. We're going to touch a little bit on it. We'll read it together. So Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. On the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them mankind on the day when he created him. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were, over, were 800 years, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now Seth lived 105 years and fathered Enosh. 
Then Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Now Enosh lived 90, 90 years and fathered Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Starting to see the pattern? Now Kenan lived 75 years and fathered Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalalel, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Now Mahalalel lived 65 years and fathered Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and... Well, you could do better. And he died. All right. Now Jared lived 160 years and fathered Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now Enoch lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he fathered Methuselah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So, <coughs> so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's the major departure. Now Methuselah lived 187 years and fathered Lamech. Then Excuse me. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, yes, and he died. Now Lamech lived 182 years, fathered a son, <coughs> and he named him Noah, saying, This one will give us comfort from our work and from the hard labors of our hands caused by the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 90, 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 770 years, and he died. Now after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. <coughs> Excuse me. Now as we look at <coughs> this book, this is the book of generations of Adam. Now, it's important to note, we, we do see this within the passage. Not every descendant, son and daughter, is listed. Born to Adam and Eve and many of the others. But there was enough children for each successive generation to find a wife. This, of course, meant marrying a sister. You're the bomb. Thank you. Which is weird to us. Weird and icky. And in fact, illegal. <laughs> but we need to remember in which the, 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 the way the world worked at that moment. The purity in which it started. Think about it. Perfect genetics. Not one mutation. Not one mutation, and this is the issue with marrying close relatives, a first cousin or sister, is it's about genetic mutations. This was the part of God's plan. This is, remember, this is part of God's plan to populate the earth. And we might, in our day, we might find it disgusting and gross, 
but we weren't working with purity as they were. But what it does highlight for us, if we can think about a little bit of science, just a little tiny peek into science, as you think about how could they live so long, again, from that genetic purity standpoint, it only serves to highlight what we know now today. And it really is the law of entropy or the second law of thermodynamics, which means nothing to most of us. But it's just the simple idea that matter always moves from a state of organization to chaos or order to chaos. In the case of genetics, in the presence of an isolated gene pool, there will be a natural increase of genetic mutations. Nearly all of them are harmful. They take away information. But when you have perfection, when you have perfection, there is very little loss of information. So they have these very, very long lives. They intermarry, and we are here now in these genealogies. But the curse, the curse brought about genetic mutation, the destruction. We'll get into that just a little bit. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. This is a significant statement that we shouldn't miss. Because if you go back to the earlier verses, um, chapter 1 and, or verse 1 and 2, it says, On the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of who? God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them. Now here it says... He fathered a son in his own likeness, according to his own image. The likeness or image is found both in the physical appearance and all the, so the spiritual likeness, which is now corrupted. So no longer is it made in the image of God, though we are, and I mentioned this before, we are still image bearers. There are still some likenesses the shadow of the former self that exists today. Children will resemble their parents, but like their parents, they will also inherit a fallen nature corrupted by sin and death. Ask any parent with small children, did you have to teach them to say no? Did you have to teach them to touch things you didn't want them to touch and then repeatedly do it? No. It was a natural function of a fallen human state. Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. This is the effect now. Made, we are made or created now, fathered in the image of Adam. But Jesus came to restore that. That was the hope they were looking forward to. Jesus came to restore mankind's former nature to restore eternity that God designed us to live in. Romans 12, 8 through 11, but God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, 
but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. We are now reconciled. But that wasn't happening. They looked forward to it. Names of children often pushed, at, pushed that message, and we'll look a little bit about that as well tonight. As the scripture says, though we were once dead, we are now alive in Christ as New Testament believers. We have already received the long awaited Messiah, hopefully. And the cycle of life and death, it is repeated over and over and over. It's repeated in us, but think about them. They were still waiting for the Messiah. Cycle of life and death repeated all the way from verse 4 to 23. Until we arrive at verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Another major departure. You have, he died, he died, he died, one after another. But we get to Enoch, and it says, He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. As in Abel's life, here was a person who approached God by faith. A life of faith, as Hebrews 11, 5, 6, or Jude 1, uh, verses 14 through 15. All we know about Enoch is from the genealogies in First Chronicles, uh, chapter 1, Luke 3, Hebrews 11, and then Jude, which Pastor Doug, I'm going to not get into, <laughs> Pastor Doug is actually going to talk about um, on Sunday as he continues his study through the book of Jude. What we do know about Enoch is that he walked with God, that he was a man whose life was characterized by a close personal relationship, an intimate friendship with God, a life walking by faith, walking in the light, and walking in agreement with God and God's words, God's commands. He, in essence, he believed what God had said and did in his obedient actions reflected this reality. And this is part of what James, the book of James is talking about, is that our lives, though we may say we have faith, must reflect it by obedient actions. It's the proof of our salvation. Now this phrase, he walked with God, it's been used of three people, Enoch, Noah, and actually Levi, one of the, the first priests. That's in Genesis 5, and Genesis 6, and Malachi 2. Yet there's only two people, Enoch and the prophet Elijah, and that's in 2 Kings, were taken up and avoided death. Other than the fact that they lived by faith, and demonstrated that life of faith, we have no reason why God decided to take them up or take them away early. I, I, I was one of those things like, man, I wonder what other scriptures might give us insight. And there is none. <laughs> it just says he liked him a lot, so he took him. But what a testimony. What a testimony to be able to say that I loved God more than anything else so much that I had a personal walk with him, that I walked in step with him, in relationship with him, that he would say, you know what? I just want you to be with me. I've got another plan. 
Now that begs the question, what happens to Enoch after that? You know, um, just a little side note. Some have proposed that Enoch and Elijah are the two witnesses that come at the, during the Great Tribulation, but we really don't know. We just know they're gone. They're not there. And God took them up. Going back to uh, verse 21, speaking of Methuselah, he is born to Enoch, and Methuselah's name in, in Hebrew means his death sends, or when he is dead it shall come, which is a little interesting given the fact that who comes after Methuselah? Noah. His, his name, again, his name means his death sends, or when he is dead, it shall come. What shall come? The flood. There is this prophetical message even given through his name. With his death, some great thing is coming. That is the destruction of all living things apart from his grandson, Noah, and Noah's family, and the living creatures that God puts on the ark. It's interesting also Methuselah would die in the year that the flood began. So he would live to see the very edge of it, the edge of what is coming in chapter 6. Now, as I mentioned, as you look at, at the very end here um, of these, each of these segments, it says he died, he died, he died. Every generation ends with death. The promised reality spoken by God to Adam and Eve in chapter 2, this is happening. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when God said, you shall surely die, because I admit there, were, there was a time I was like, wait a second, I, I know said, God said, when you, when you eat of this fruit, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I'm like, wait a second. No, they didn't. And this has always perplexed me. But this is where it's, it is really helpful for us to, and you don't need a, you know, some great theological education. We have incredible tools readily available to anyone at all that you can look up some of these Hebrew words and understand the meanings of them. But in Genesis 2.17, when God said, you shall surely die, in, in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, it's actually two re words that are repeated and are best understood as in dying, you shall die. In dying, you shall die. You are going to be dying, and it will lead to your death. As the curse is pronounced, and they are driven from the garden, as I mentioned in this whole genetic thing, their cells in their body begin to degrade. Mutations generation after generation. Dying begins and ultimately leads to death for all mankind. I found it really interesting, and this is just a weird side note, because I, I love science and stuff. Um, scientists have done a, a bunch of studies on cell reproduction, and most of all your cells in your body are constantly regenerating. So most of the cells in your body, average lifespan is about 10 years. So most of your body is 10 years old, which explains why some of us act like idiots, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there is a part, there are parts of our body that cannot regenerate. They do not regenerate cells. Your brain, 
being one of them, your heart being another, the two most important functioning organs for life, they don't regenerate. They're in a constant state of decay. Moving on, that was just for fun. Their bodies begin to decay and the ultimate response is death. Death for not just these individuals, but all mankind now from this point forward. God's word is trustworthy. What he says is fact and truth. For even as, John, as Jesus said in John 14, 6, truth is a part of his nature. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. The truth of God cannot be changed. As sure as he said, death will come. However, he also said, life. That was the promise there. As he's removing them from the garden, he's promising them a future hope, a future life, eternal life, that it will be restored. And, and yes, this, this restoration would take many, many generations and accompanied by many sorrows. However, we don't have to fear. We, we are in this place, as I mentioned before, as believers, having recognized that Jesus is or was the long-awaited Messiah, is the Messiah for us, that we do not have this fear. He, and, he, and he wrote in John 16, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Huge difference for us. And they long to see that. They long to see the hope. And we are able to experience it now. And that is also what is able to give us confidence to look beyond death, the fear of death, even the current events that we are experiencing now. It is the ability for the believer to say, you know what, I know things are crazy in Ukraine. I know things are crazy in Portland or in my family or in my life, but I do not have to be afraid of those things because death has no power. He has overcome that death. As I said before, it's important for us to remember that God started with perfection, with something he described as very good. However, sin, this very good, because of sin, this very good creation was infected with a terrible dying disease, a disease passed from one person to another. Though mankind introduced the disease, God was still intent on curing it and restoring what was lost, and he does this through cleansing, which leads us to chapter 6. Now it came about when mankind began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also after, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. That is a disgusting statement right there. That every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. He's narrowing it down to the finest pinpoint. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals as well and crawling things and the birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah was a right, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. Then the Lord said to Noah, The end of humanity has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of people, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with compartments and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you will make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and put the door of the ark on the side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now behold, I myself am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind of the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kind, of every crawling thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of every food that is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and them. Noah did all these things according to everything that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, as we think about this, Chapter 6 begins with a little flashback, a look in time to provide a little more detail or a reference point for what is about to take place. As it says, the population of the earth increases because of sin, evil increases, really to this point of no return. Now it says there in verses 1 and 2, the sons of God and and. This is kind of a sticky point, so we're going to deal with it just very briefly. Uh, the only other appearances of this phrase are actually found in Job 1, verse 6, Job 2, verse 1, and Job 38, verse 7. Now, in each of those occurrences, it is understood to refer to angelic beings, and this idea seems to be supported, and I think Pastor Doug will be talking about that in June, in Jude on Sunday. However, it is important to note that there is some debate about this and, and some varying thoughts about demon-possessed people or um, the, the descendants of Seth, the Sethites marrying Cain, Cain's relatives. Um, but, so we can't be dogmatic about 
this one way or another, but I think based upon my reading and understanding and a plain reading of the text, I think demons or fallen angels is the most likely. However, regardless of which view you hold, we understand what the condition of the world was. It wasn't good. It was all jacked up. It was exceedingly corrupt and teetering on the edge of destruction. And what was the Lord's response? Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. 120 years. Now, contrary, the first several times in my Christian life when I read this, I was like, okay, you know, that means man's only going to live 120 years. The problem was you get farther into the Bible, you realize that even after the flood, people lived significantly longer than 120 years. It's really the, under, the simple understanding of it is that God is saying, my judgment is coming in 120 years. The flood is going to appear in 120 years. He's setting a countdown clock for the coming judgment. And, and he's telling them. He's giving them advanced warning. Despite what mankind has done with God's image and likeness, he was still willing to be patient and gracious. There is an end to his patience, to be sure. Unfortunately, humanity, including many today, view the patience of God as they did in the time of Noah, <laughs> as evidence that he either does not exist or doesn't care about sin. And this couldn't be further from the truth. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, most importantly, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And we, we, I think we heard this last week. Where is the promise of his coming? They will ask. Every since our father said, fell asleep, everything continues as it has from the beginning of creation. And so like, listen, we've, been we've heard this story before. How many times have you, if you've ever done any street witnessing, uh, people said, you know, oh yeah, I've heard that story before. And, and people have been saying that for, you know, hundreds of years. You know, it's just a fairy tale. But verse 5 of 2 Peter 3, but they deliberately overlooked the fact that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world of that time perished in the flood. He's saying they are missing the fact that God has already given them an advanced notice. My patience is limited. Verse 7, and by that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 1,656 years approximately from the time of Adam to the time of the flood, the Lord patiently watched the decline of the human race. It, our passage tells us that it grieved his heart that it caused him sorrow, that it said, I'm sorry that I made them. 
I, I, I think we can appreciate that a little bit as parents when we see our kids wandering from the truth and piercing themselves with all forms of sin. Like, oh, my heart is grieved. I'm sorry. I, like, I'm sad that, I'm kind of sad that, I, that you came into my life and you're now experiencing this. It would be better, as Job said, it'd be better if I was never born. But again, we don't have to live in that depressive state. With sorrow, God observed the pride and the arrogance of those he created as they rejected his love. 1,600 plus years of, as, as we might learn from another passage, sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostile, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, and carousing. The deeds of the flesh were thriving in the fertile soil of rebellion against God. And why? The Lord observed it all, but why? Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, patient with me, not waiting, wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, to turn around and face the truth. There is a God, the God of the Bible. I have violated his most basic commands. I've corrupted my life. And there's nothing I can do to change that. But God in his infinite love loves me so much that he was willing to step down into my mess, take on my sin, suffer and die for it, resurrected that he would pay for it so that I could be restored in a relationship. God endured these sins the sickness, these same things for 4,300 plus years or so since the flood and another 2,000 plus years since Christ's death and resurrection, he does not wish any to perish. That's the reason for his patience. How then are we to be? Now, I admit, we kind of joke about it, it's like the last thing you want to do is patience because God is going to give you an opportunity to exercise some patience. But if God is the ultimate example of patience and we are made in his image and likeness, we should expect to exercise patience. Patience with this world Think about for a moment with me with Noah. He is commanded to build this large boat that no body of water he lives near is going to float. <laughs> now, based on some research and everything, it, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 or so years that Noah works on this ark. 
in the middle of all this insanity. Uh, What did it say? Evil continually. Evil continually. Everywhere. Always. And yet he was patient. He was patient because God had already been patient towards him. Make no mistakes, God patient is, patience is not forever. Jesus warned us many times of his coming judgment. Through the apostles, he again warned us, judgment is coming. It came by water the first time, but the second time it will come by fire. In verses 4 and on, we were given the brief picture of the state of humanity in light of God's patience. Noah walked with God. Another big change, as Enoch before him, Noah walked with God. He was found to be a man of faith, a man of righteousness, living in a perverse world, patiently doing what God had called him to do. See, you see, Noah is a foreshadowing. Noah and the ark are foreshadowing of the Christ, the one man in the world worthy enough to be tasked with saving humans from extinction, not because he was perfect, but because he believed God. And that belief moved him to action. He was not perfect, he was righteous. So what are some, how are some of the parallels between Noah and the ark and Christ? The, I, I, I'll list, I think there's nine here. Um, Noah's name, this is a significant one. As, as Methuselah was, hey, the coming judgment, basically. Noah's name means rest. He was the one to bring rest or salvation from the coming judgment. Noah walked with God. He had this intimate relationship, as did Christ. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5, telling others to repent of their sins, lest they perish. What was Christ doing? Through Noah, the instrument of salvation was offered, though few would accept it. Jesus said there are many, many who walk the road the easy road that leads to destruction, but few walk this road, this path that leads to eternal life. The instrument of salvation was wood in both cases. The ark had a single door. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I've got the, I'm, I keep the gate. I'm the gatekeeper. He said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me, the single door. The ark was covered with pitch. As believers, in order to receive salvation, we must be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood administered by the Holy Spirit then becomes that seal that seals our future. Noah did all that God commanded. And what was Jesus' testimony? I only do what the Father tells me to do. And the ark carried all who entered to safety. 
Jesus said this in John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, but because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am there, you also will be. In Corinthians, it says that our lives are hidden in Christ, stored up, protected for a future date. Now, as we look at the the situation in our city, our state, our nation, you know, around the world, really, we might be tempted to echo the words of verse 5. When it says, The Lord saw that wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And we can easily wring our hands and say, What's the point? I certainly, there has been times, especially over these last two plus years, where I'm just like, I give up. You know, it's just so bad, you know, just like, come on, Jesus, come on home. But that's not the heart that he has for us. Jesus desired, desires none should perish. And he came and he lived and suffered so that he might save some from the coming wrath of God. And he's saying, you, you go and do likewise. You go and live. And yes, you will suffer, but only for a little while. As the scripture says, momentary and light afflictions. Listen, we live in a country where we can honestly say compared to our brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, and other parts of the world that these are momentary light afflictions. If you need a reality check, I challenge you to go on a mission trip into a third world country. Now, you might do some great things there. You might, you're probably going to preach the gospel, but I promise you, you will come back going, I am a dirtbag. I have so much to be thankful for. Lord, please don't let complaints slip from my lips. You see, if all we focus on is what is bad and wrong and must up, then we enter into despair, but we are not called to live in a place of despair. If we recall the patient, gracious, merciful nature of the Lord, our hope is restored. Though sin might increase and justice and truth are denied, nothing will stop God from completing and keeping his promises, and they are many. In this passage, God makes a covenant with Noah, an agreement hinged solely upon the nature and character of God. I will preserve. I will make a way. And this covenant is continued on through Christ I will preserve you. I will make a way. You will join me. Yet for now, speak of me often. 
God has spoken and demonstrated his plan to preserve those who by faith love him and to see us safely home. He has provided the means for our safe travel amid storms and chaos. He's given us signs of his promises, the seal of his Holy Spirit, and with the Spirit, the provisions to see us to the end. The Holy Spirit being our comforter and our provider, our source of power and strength. Though the curse brought a dying which leads to death, his love turned it around. Through our dying to the deeds of the flesh by faith in Christ, we are living and will live. In you and me, God's grand adventure and history of love, it continues. And it will not be overcome, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in earthen containers, so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That when people look at us and we are standing for truth and righteousness in a depraved world, they will say that can only be the power of God. Though we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. We become, as Jesus said we would, we become the salt. We become the light, the the light on the hill, the, the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. There may be death and destruction all around us, but it does not sway us from the command from God for us to go, to be fruitful, to be bearers of his fruit and to multiply the kingdom of God. Amen? And this is our hope and our peace. And it's not found in you or me. As Pastor Doug said, the problem has always been you and I right? If there's one thing we learn from this, it wasn't the environment. It was perfect to start with. And God said, well, in case you missed it, I'll do it again. It's always been you and I. And the issue is, will we have an attitude, a heart of faith that says, I believe who you are. I surrender to that and I will walk by faith that others might see your good works in me and turn and glorify you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.